Welcome to EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. Today, we get a financial advisor's perspective on the EIS and VCT market. Stephen Jones is an experienced financial planner and ESA board member with lots of experience of helping clients invest in tax advantage products. With a great wide-ranging discussion, which we have split into two episodes. In this one, we cover how he advises clients to invest in this area, how to choose between EIS and VCT, and his general approach to product selection. While next week's bonus episode, we'll dig more into detail to some of the important factors to examine when helping clients select individual products. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe on all good podcast services, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you have any suggestions for further topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries at harmonandco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So today we are joined by Stephen Jones, who is a financial planner at Clear Solutions at IFA. Welcome to podcast, Stephen. Good morning. Hi. So we've got you on to speak out things. I think it's perhaps worth seeing your own phrase a little bit. Uh, you're a multiple award-winning IFA. You know, you won awards for your, your knowledge about the tax enhanced space. So we're looking forward to a lot of insight. But I'd like to start by finding out a bit more about you. And how did you become a financial planner? Oh, a long time ago. And as many long time ago financial planners would say, I fell into it. It wasn't a plan. Um, I'd had a previous career, found that I couldn't pursue that previous career due to that time, huge economic recession. The great advantage and the old adage in those days was you were qualified in financial services if you could produce compensation on a mirror. I managed that, so I was in. Um, And from that, then, of course, it was just a slow upward track. The big advantage I always had was that I'd come from a very, very technical style of background and relatively few people in financial services had that sort of inclination. So I've always liked learning. I've always liked trying to understand why the next thing should apply. And that's helped enormously in my space. So that's been my story of how I got into financial planning. Okay. So tell us a little bit more about your IFA practice and perhaps giving a little slant on EIS and VCT and how they're a part of your business. Well, from the day I started in financial services, to my mind, the attractive bit was how you left your clients better off. And one of the immediate and obvious ways to make a client better off was to take advantage of whatever tax concession was going. Mm-hmm. And so I've always lent in that particular direction. And of course, in those days, along came personal equity plans, the enterprise zones, etc. So I've always been interested in that space. These days, of course, we're much more familiar with the ISA and the pensions. And of course, our immediate topic of conversation, the enterprise investment schemes and venture capital trusts, which are outstanding, because unlike many tax concessions other than the mainstream pensions and ISAs, these are confirmed by the uh, by HMRC that they are appropriate, they're suitable. We're not going to have the problems that we've had with other so-called tax products like film partnerships um, or employee benefit trusts where um, retrospectively they've come back to say, well, actually, that was an interpretation of law and now we're going to see what we think. So these are things that HMRC has agreed. As long as you comply with those particular rules and regulations, they meet the criteria. Now, that is enormously reassuring, both to us as advisors, but also our clients. And that's something that does occasionally crop up, particularly with older clients. Mm-hmm. Is that because they've been burnt before or is it because they're more cautious? It's because some clients have been burnt before, unquestionably. And certainly if you're talking to clients 45 plus, um, a lot of them who are wealthy have had experience of 
products that have turned out not to work. And therefore, they are much more skeptical. But having said that, when you earn a great deal of money, you are immediately attracted to ways to try to claw some of that tax back. And as we both know, the tax concessions, um, whether it's income tax or capital gains tax, or in some cases, the inheritance tax implications for these products are just superb. Mm -hmm. So at the very, very least, I don't believe an advisor um, is doing their job if they actually don't discuss the relevance and appropriateness of these products. It doesn't matter whether the client proceeds. But you've got to do your job properly and make sure the client mm -hmm. understands the attraction of them mm -hmm. and equally the risks associated with them, which, of course, is a subject in its own right. It is. And we're going to go, go into some of these. So I'm going to return to the tax in a moment. But I think you've kind of touched on this already. How, how do you see EIS and VCTs fitting into an advice framework? If you've got a client sitting there, what, what brings them into the discussion? Oh, Okay, well, this is going to sound a little bit weird, but when you're at school, you probably remember Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yes. Absolutely. Well, of course, financial planning is copying Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, the base level is protection. That's your insurance and things like that. And as you grow up and you uh, grow up through the pyramid, you're ultimately getting to more altruistic things for other people. And if you think about it in that context without going into a great amount of detail, the EIS VCTs are actually about deferred gratification and building that wealth and building that security. So from a purely financial planning ones, you're doing all the base level stuff. I've always touched on protection. But if you talk about investments, you're doing your pensions and your ISAs and the obvious things, your national savings, those type of things. Some of them have immediate tax advantages. And even investment bonds have appropriate tax concessions, whether you're using offshore or onshore. They're not a subject of this discussion, but they're all part of the jigsaw that we put together for clients. But when you get to the EIS and VCTs, the real discussion should be about, look, we've done and created a mainstream secure base for you. We've identified your goals in life that you're after. We've tried to identify the specific needs that support those goals. Now what we're trying to do is to fill in the best way to meet those. Now, when you get to a certain stage, it's about creating wealth, then that splits into two main camps for the mainstream stuff in the space that we're talking about. So EIS gives you that opportunity if we dismiss the pure tax angle for a second. And VCTs provide you that ongoing income that you might require tax advantageously. So the beauty of that is the client that now needs to understand what those options are. And we actually have a story that we go through effectively, where we explain all about the reassurance, the security, and the levels are met. And then when we get to that stage about adventure, opportunity, and risk, we then bring those products in. So it's very much into that type of framework. And what we found over the years, that the many, many people understand Maslow, even if they don't remember all of the details. And whilst I don't labor the point, it helps them picture and structure how it fits in. Mm -hmm. um, because what we're trying to avoid is the technical detail. And what I mean by avoid is it's premature to go, did you realize you got this thing, this thing, and that thing? What you want is for a client to understand how it fits into their storyline. Yeah, because I've, I've done some work on asset allocation and asset allocation modelling, and it's quite easy to show that venture capital's diversifying asset, and you can pick a, a, a mix. I mean, my, yeah, I reckon it's about between 5 and 15%, depending on the client's risk profile. And that's all great, but if I put that in, probably in front of the average investor, they'll go, what? Absolutely, and I couldn't agree more. 
And so I'll confess that when I first started, it was all about, oh, we've got this superb product and this product will let you have 30% income tax relief or 50% in the old days uh, and all that type of stuff. And that excites them, but it's the wrong thing to do uh-huh. because, you know, the old adage of don't let the tax tail wag the investment dog absolutely applies. It's almost a case of about the what, how do you feel about investments? You've got all of this huge range of diversified investment products, but do you want anything more specifically? Are there things that are attracting you? So if I may, I'd like to give you what for me is a brilliant example. I have a very elderly client. She's in her 80s. She, she is wealthy and she's pretty well blind, virtually blind. So we have to record all of our suitability letters. We have to record all of our advice so she can listen to it. She gets it on paper for a file purposes uh-huh. and she gets it digitally so she can blow it up on the screen, but it's not much help because even with the screen, she's looking like 10 words on a whole screen. So we record everything for her to listen to. But she expressed the view that she would love to support anything that researches into blindness and cures for blindness, ways of mitigating it, etc. Now, the drawback of that for us is that there aren't any funds that work <laughs> in that particular space. But what she did say is if ever you hear of an investment opportunity that does anything like that, will you at least send it to me? So there we have professionally to tread fine balance because we can't recommend single company investments. But what we did do was put her in touch with this particular company that we came across that was doing specific research in macular degeneration, which was her particular issue, and she loved it. And she then dealt with them directly and invested quite a considerable sum to help them do that research. Now, for me, that's incredibly rewarding. Absolutely Mm -hmm. no financial um, aspect to it at all for us as a firm. But are we doing the right thing for our clients? Are we meeting what she wanted? Absolutely. And from a technical point of view, she's invested in a single company EIS, but that's her decision. And she took a lot of time. I, in fact, was extremely careful. And as a proportion of her wealth, it's insignificant. But that is what she talks about every single time we talk. She's got a huge investment portfolio, mm-hmm. but she talks about that and far less interested. And I think as advisors, that sometimes we've got to identify that and recognize that if we can treat and help customers to recognize Let's make sure that you are safe, you are secure. And actually, if you want a bit of fun with your money, let's work out what can be segmented. And if there's something that's appropriate, you can do that. And, you, and that in no way can put at risk your lifestyle. But if it does that, that to me is part of what we should be doing. No, that's, that, that sounds like you, you've got a very happy client there, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. So, so you've already touched on the tax versus investment aspects. And I think this is one of the big tensions in the industry in that you have the government gives tax breaks, presumably to incentivize people to do something they wouldn't otherwise do. Yeah. Um, and then on the other hand, you as an advisor require people to have the right investments and you mentioned about the tax tail and the investment dog, which is the cliche that runs around the industry, but we can't avoid it. There's a fundamental tension there. How do you balance that? For me, it is actually quite straightforward. Professionally, whenever we have a client, and this is across the board, uh, we do, and it's now become, I'm going to say more fashionable, but we've done it for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where we do cash flow forecasting. And so our starting position always is, Has the client done everything that they uh, can do to make sure that their objectives and needs are met throughout their predicted lifetime? Now, if we've done that first, we now know that there is a segment of their wealth 
that can be invested in other ways. Now, for some clients, it will always be invested in what we're going to call mainstream investments, mainstream opportunities, or whether we're going to turn around and say, you've got plenty in the investment space, because we're financial planners. We don't care whether you're going to invest in the equity markets and we advise on it, or you invest in the equity markets and we don't advise on it, or if you say, actually, I'm going to create a property portfolio, or I'm going to create a portfolio of businesses. And we've got clients who do those as well. Our job is to help them rationalize it, see what they've got, how they've got it, and balance it. Mm-hmm. It's not to say, please just give your money to me for me to invest. So if you've got that approach to it, then advising, as you called on, on being aware of that tension, disappears. Okay. You, we simply don't have it. It's an, Investing in the tax advantage space is merely another thing within the portfolio for our clients. So yes, and I use the example of my elderly client, and there are other clients like her. Are you interested in a particular area because you've now got some money that's spare? Are you attracted because you want to be involved, giving your advice? Now, to be fair, EI funds, it doesn't work. They are not interested in clients who are going to say, I've got a great idea. I think you should be doing this. They don't want to know. Some single companies, as you will be aware, if they are put in touch with somebody who's got very relevant skills, they will appreciate it. But actually, the vast majority don't either, if I'm blunt. Um, <laughs> they want to run with their idea, not someone yeah, else's. Do. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, they'll pay lip service to, yes, we're really, really grateful. And thanks very much for the money. We'd love to hear from you. But in my experience, that doesn't last too long. But sticking with the point, once that client's identified they have an appetite, then it starts becoming a joy to work out what's the right shape. Now, mm-hmm. if we've got a shape, now then it can be driven by investment decisions. Do you want to diversify your portfolio? Are you interested in particular areas that are not really well reflected by the big funds? And then you can drill down, particularly in advancing technology. And you've only got to think about where that became unstuck. Woodford was a brilliant example. He thought that was a huge example and bought far of a great place to put money. But of course, went outside the remit and invested um, too much in that particular space. But also he had huge funds and huge wealth. And the space that you and I look at actually can't cope with somebody turning up with millions of pounds and saying, can we do it? This is a space for the smaller investor, for the more focused investor who wants a particular bias and focus. And that's where the IFA can help totally in terms of either directing it in a particular way or if they want to create a portfolio. And we have a client who's now got over a million pounds in EIS funds. But the biggest they've now got is 50,000 in any one, in any one EIS. That's also single company, etc. But they're very active. They do a lot of self-selection as well as being advised mm-hmm. by us. And that it's the balancing act. So the tension To answer your question, we don't experience, but I think you're right, it can be there, but we don't see it in our particular firm because of the way in which we advise. Okay, okay. And you mentioned about planning out over time, because there's something I hear a little bit of, and and something that sometimes I speak to advisors where if you've got a client who's got no exposure in this area, it may well be something that because of the, the tax they pay, if you want to get the right asset allocation over time, it's two or three or five years of, okay, I'm going to put a little bit into VCTs or EIS over the next few years. Whereas there's no regular investments for any of these. Do you have a capability to plan these future investments or is it a case of people have to come back each year? Or Okay. Now there's, there's two distinct parts, I think, to that question. Firstly, if we've got a client who's tax-driven, and that does happen, and, of course, many accountancy firms, although they cannot recommend 
EIS funds will say to a client, here's a tax scenario and this will meet the solution. And certainly we are now increasingly finding there are accountancy firms who've heard of the reputation of this firm and are saying, actually, we can advise the client, not a problem from the tax issue and getting the offset, etc. But we need to have a relationship with an advisory firm that gets this space. And not least is the reporting side, which perhaps we can talk a little bit later, because that's an interesting problem. <laughs> but sticking with your point, firstly, we do have the odd client who just wants a very specific dabble. And therefore, it's almost like a bet. I've got 10, 20, 25,000. I just want to put it into that because, and that's it. Very few clients in that space. Most of them, we try and say, well, look, if you are going to be a client, because as a firm, we've pretty well now eliminated one-off clients. So therefore, it's going to be, we can see that actually this is going to be a recurring thing. So let's work out what type of portfolio you should have. Uh-huh. Do you actually want a mainstream investment portfolio in the EIS? And that's not an oxymoron. What I mean by that is do you want a broad-based, I want an EIS in the med tech space, I want an EIS in the general business space, I want an EIS in the um, renewable space, or whatever. Or are you saying, actually, I've got a real interest in med tech or the scientific area, and therefore any EIS investments in that space I'm particularly attracted to. And so therefore you get that opportunity to have a dialogue with the client. And unlike almost any other area, you can engage the client. So actually we tend to build portfolios up over years. And part of what we talk about for clients is if you want to go into this space, let's look at a a three, four year, five year program of building that diversified investment portfolio. And relatively recently we started to get clients to sign up that's the philosophy which we never used to do to be fair that balances with vcts big debate as to which is the higher risk i know that our professional indemnity insurers say that vcts are much lower risk than eis's personally i think the jury's out when you can you can combine a portfolio i think you were just going to say on day one and you had 50 grand to put what into one or the other i think probably vct is probably the lower risk but if you're building a diversified portfolio over a number of years i think when you look at all the tax concessions associated around an eis i think the seesaw swaps over to an eis portfolio mm-hmm. i mean it's interesting that perspective because i've spoken a bit on this myself so i think if a vct was run in you know, what we would imagine that some sort of ideal way, then it would have a lot of advantages. But the reality is they, they're quite cash heavy because of the fundraisings and that creates a friction and you're paying fees on cash. So I think EIS should produce a better return over time. So it's definitely a more balanced decision. It's something I've changed my opinion on over time. Well, the same. When I first started in this space, I thought VCTs, I thought the, I, I almost thought the decision was really easy. Do you want income? Do you want um, the opportunity of capital growth? Right, decision made. And I think it's actually more nuanced than that now. Uh-huh. And so from, like so many things in the financial planning space, it's about knowing your clients more than anything. And it's about taking your client on that journey with you. It's not about, for me, trundling along once a year, whatever frequency you would like and say, oh, here's the latest super duper product. I don't see EIS or VCT as a product sale. It's about building that portfolio with a client. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And are there any particular clients where you would say, right, you have to, or, or any particular clients where you say, right, these aren't suitable for you? What, what do you think about when, when these sort of okay. cutoffs? I unquestionably think there are many, in fact, we've turned down clients so but there are two reasons we turn down clients to invest in particularly in the eis 
and partially so in the VCT. Firstly, they have to be a full financial planning client. We will not give advice in that space unless they go through our entire process. Okay. Uh, so we had a client referred to us a couple of years ago now, and they had over half a million, and they'd come to us because they wanted to build an EIS portfolio, and they wanted us to do it for them, could easily do it. The problem was, under no circumstances would he go through a financial planning process. Just didn't want, He didn't want to explain why he had a property portfolio, why he had business interests, what his other investments. He said, no, I'm giving you half a million. Now, I do appreciate there are plenty of firms that have gone, thanks very much for the half mil, we'll do with it. We won't. It's part of your investment portfolio. It's part of what we're trying to build for you. If you won't be honest and open and transparent with us, we can't and won't advise you. So that's one answer. The other answer is, given that you now know that you've got to go through a financial planning process, it could be we end up thinking, actually, despite what you tell us, you're really just attracted to the tax release. As soon as you start discovering that some of your EISs have failed, or you've been one of those very unlucky people that VCT has done catastrophically, you're going to go up the wall. You're not emotionally materially capable of dealing with that type of roller coaster. Therefore, you're unsuitable. Therefore, we won't advise you. We've been there. Or it could be as simple as we've done all the financial analysis, we've done all the cash flow forecasting, and in our view, you can't afford to do it, in which case we're not going to uh, advise you either. And we've had those situations as Mm -hmm. well. Yeah. I I think I've heard examples of all those scenarios floating around as well. Mm. So moving on from the general should someone be investing in the IAS of ECTs, maybe we should can think a bit more about individual products and how, you, assuming you have a client now who wants to invest in these things, how do you think about selecting a product? I don't know, you as a principal, do you have a little panel, that you, the ones you consider, or are you doing it more on a bespoke basis? Right. VCTs, we tend to look at quarterly. In fact, I'm thinking about changing it to six monthly because the the VCT arms out there all tend to come out, as you know, within a certain window if they're fundraising. So it's probably better to say that we look at it every six months, really. Um, and we do have baseline criteria. Now, that's where, for us, as you know, there's a number of software packages out there which allow us to filter, and they're brilliant at that. Um, and I actually can't see how any advisor without access to some type of filtering software truly can sort of say, I've gone from the universe, or whatever the size of the universe is at that moment in time, down to a shortlist. But once you've got that shortlist, and we try to make a shortlist of somewhere between, preferably not one, but <laughs> depends on, on circumstance. But generally, two, three, no more than six. That's the idea of using that software, really, to filter it down to something that fits a particular space. I'll come back to some of the criteria in a second. But once we've got that, we 99% of the time want some type of independent analyst report. And, of course, that's where the likes of people such as Hardman come in. You know, the the fact that you, and to be fair, there are others, Mm -hmm. um, the fact that that. you guys (laughs) will actually, on request, if possible, do an analysis of a particular investment is fantastic. Um, And we always want that for a particular review. But once we've done that, in some cases, if they're well-known providers, in other words, they've been around a long time. Now, that, of course, in the VCT space, which is easier to research, there's a lot more public knowledge. Mm -hmm. Um, By definition, they're much larger. Also, the cost of entry into the VCT space is much, much higher. So you tend to have as we both know, a much more established style fund. And therefore, by definition, there tends to be a track record. So the analysis of a VCT is considerably easier, but we still like the report. The EIS, of course, is fractured. 
Now, as a firm, and I do appreciate there are other firms out there, but we can't advise on single company EISs. However, I personally invest in EIS. I also think that just because we can't advise clients to invest in EISs, nothing beats meeting those people. And some of those individual EISs, in fact, a shocking proportion of them, end up inside funds. And that's very reassuring Mm -hmm. because I do think funds absolutely have their place and not least because they are another layer of validation and checks on the individual company that they've invested in. Now, we don't have the skill set as an IFA. We don't have the time to actually go down to that individual company, even if we were so inclined and we're not, to actually do that assessment. So to know that there's a fund manager and also that there's an analyst who's doing that job and we can access that information for us is essential. And we won't invest in a fund if they don't have a third party report. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you, I mean, you touched on there about how there's a limited amount of time. This must be something a lot of IFAs struggle with, where this is a niche area, for better or for worse, for m- the majority of IFAs, but it's quite a detailed area. How do you balance? that sort of, okay, it's it's probably a minority of your business, but spending the right amount of time in it and getting, but still getting enough information to give the right advice. Okay, uh, that's a great question. I've probably got it wrong because mm-hmm. I give the EIS and VCT space more because I'm personally very interested in it. But to be specific, if you wanted to, it's like the bad old days as an IFA with the mainstream funds. They would take you out for lunch. They would give you this, that, and the other. That, to a great extent, has disappeared in the mainstream world, and quite rightly so as well. But the reality is virtually every IFA is too time pressured. And I think that's become symptomatic of really many professions. Mm-hmm. So I feel that Zoom has been fantastic, uh, absolutely incredible, or, or Teams or whatever, because it's now so much easier I've learned that if you can't get the key points out within half an hour, probably they haven't got their um, rehearsal right um, (laughs) anyway, because I'm not able to go into that level. I cannot be a specialist interviewing a business that's manufacturing chocolate one day, and then I'm looking at somebody who's investing in cancer relief treatment the next. I do not have that type of skill set. So therefore, my initial impressions are going to be more superficial, but you've got to rely on that. So I'll come back to that point in a second. So Zoom is great if I want to talk to somebody in particular. I always want to talk to the underlying investment mm-hmm. when we're looking at fund level, always. And the reason for that, and I don't mean by that the BDM, I'm much more interested in the guys who manage the money. Mm-hmm. Because the BDM's job, with the greatest of respect to them, and there are some fantastic BDMs out there, is that they're not the guy who actually manage the money, the investments, etc. And that's what I'm interested in. So I'm always, always when you start looking at criteria, which perhaps we ought to go on to, first mm-hmm. and foremost is the team. Has the team got a track record? Have they got experience? It doesn't always have to be in that field. There are some great fund managers who've pivoted quite well because they've applied a rigor to their discipline that they're going through. But somewhere I want a history. So I don't just want the risk factor of somebody with just a brilliant idea is too great. So preferably it's going to be a team. We've had the odd exception. And the reason for that is I think it's virtually impossible for one man to be great at operations, great at marketing, great Mm -hmm. at the entrepreneurial ideas. So it needs to be a team from our point of view. So that's a big filter for us. Um, And and thinking about teams, you, you say you want to speak to team. 
in some cases you have certainly in the is space in particular you have some relatively small teams where you've got three four half a dozen people and and you can speak to one or maybe two of those meaningfully you've got quite a few large companies out there that have a dozen or 20 people yes you can speak to one of them but they're probably a junior member of the team and you've got another 19 people who who are really making decisions and you're spot on with that particular comment and it does make it difficult but that's where the next stage comes in okay because i can only go so far for two reasons one is i may not get access to the right people because we are with the greatest respect to ourselves a small firm we're never going to be from in their eyes somebody who's going to give them a million pounds it's just not going to happen mm-hmm. um so we can get to a certain stage but that's why as i said earlier we rely on the, the independent analysts because they are going to have access and so therefore we want to get that type of view the other bit though is more subjective and it ties into the beginning question that you asked in this area and that is how do we get that knowledge for, for us virtually all roadshows now are in are in london they've started to come out to the regions better and it is happening but then they're curated quite heavily so the days where there's a lot of vis providers in one place and there's a number of all day sessions done by different organizations and i like those because i can spend two or three days in the course of a year and meet a lot of vis funds mm-hmm. and that's very very productive because then you get the chance to talk to those guys and work out which ones you want to take further or indeed continue a relationship with and so if you like it is that three-pronged approach those days where you're meeting lots of people and i really do go there to meet a lot of people the use of the reports and of course that opportunity to try on on some occasions to go into that individual company so you mentioned about external information a little bit there what information do you feel you can rely on that you get and what do you feel you as an individual, need to verify yourself? There are a range of external analysts, as you Mm -hmm. know. Yes, Um, being one. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed, being one. I think that they have different strengths. But generally speaking, the top analysts, you are obviously one of those. Thank you. Um, I'll pay you later. (laughs) We we don't, yeah, indeed. Well, we don't try to validate what you say. You know, we, we take what you've done. As, as being correct and that you have investigated and you, you, that, that an analyst in your position will not put your name against something that you have not satisfied mm-hmm. that you have done the appropriate due diligence. And again, you have some peers who I would say are exactly the same space. If it's a reporting thing, which there are some providers um, of information in that space where they effectively give you the information, if they'll say that it's verified, then we're happy to take that. If they say it's been provided, then we normally go back to the provider and say, I'm um, sorry, the, indi- the individual company and say, please, will you confirm that this information is correct? But generally speaking, I revert to the fact that we tend to always want an independent analyst, our view, who would respect. Because quite simply, we've seen examples of where, I'm not going to name names, where there have been one or two providers who've asserted something which hasn't turned out to be quite what they asserted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, um, I have seen one or two of those incidents myself. <laughs> yes, fortunately they're few and far between, but it does happen. But um, from a PI point of view, at least we can verify we've asked, That's, and that is important. We hope you enjoyed that episode with Stephen Jones, and don't forget you can catch the second half of the conversation in next week's bonus episode. As usual, the show notes will be available with links at harbinandco.com forward slash podcast. If you liked what you hear, then please give us a review with lots of stars on Apple Podcasts. You can also subscribe on all good podcast services and players. 
For more information, you can email us at inquiries at harmonico.com. Thanks for listening and hope to speak again soon.